experience, addiction doesn't change who you are. Not really. Imagery of zombie-like hordes of pockmarked tweakers with nothing to lose, yellow clothes that used to be white, green teeth that used to be yellow, and a reaver-like affection for turning normals inside out are rooted in the darkness of IRL addiction, but their populations on TV vastly outnumber those found in the wild. In fact, most drug addicts I've known, I didn't know. Didn't know about the depths of their addiction, I mean. Not until they reckoned with it themselves and brought it to the group. Then, naturally, we shunned and ostracized them for fear of having our toasters stolen and fillings traded for the world's last surviving quaalude. But before we did that, it dawned on us. You can't really tell who's an addict a lot of the time. Drugs and alcohol can indeed devour a person whole, especially in my fanfic about the sentient baggie of cocaine that ate Manhattan, but it takes longer than you might think. That's one of the worst parts, actually, watching a loved one sink into the quicksand at a rate of half an inch a year and wondering if they'll ever grab the branch you're holding out. But it's also one of the best parts, because it gives us more time to intervene, not that that's always possible, or just to appreciate our loved ones, all of the other parts of them, before they do, sadly, sink out of view, as will we all. We will all die in quicksand. I'm sorry if this is the first you're hearing about it. So, addiction doesn't really change who you are, not wholly. For example, I like words. I'm an alcoholic. When I was drinking, I became an alcoholic who likes words. Want to hear some? Okay. I call it my drunctionary, and it contains only lingo that I used to describe my own alcoholism to myself. Words and phrases made up involuntarily by my brain and shared with no one until now. <clears throat> Doing the rounds. Verb. One. Taking a hit of weed, holding it in your lungs while doing a shot of whiskey, then releasing the hit of weed like a badass dragon who really needs to value their own long-term health more. 2. My standard unit of self-destruction, parceled out anywhere from 2 to 12 times a day. The paper route. Noun. The circuitous pattern of bars I would frequent to try and avoid any one bartender noticing me, remembering me, considering me a regular, or, God forbid, getting on my case about coming in so much. It didn't work. Moderation. Noun. Drinking all the damn time and assuming that's okay, because I still get my work done and I haven't hit a kid in my car or jumped to heroin yet. That yellow bastard. Noun. Kind of like puke, but uh, that specific kind of puke where you've puked all your puke, so the little Pixar inside-out team that lives in your stomach and regulates your puke starts sending up gallons of chalky acid instead. I usually blame the angry red Lewis Black one. I'm a classic man. Idiomatic. The time-honored process of drinking straight from the bottle you found in a family member's liquor cabinet, then replacing the liquor that replaced the water in your body with water from the sink. Even Steven. And, lastly, booze-doos can be a noun or a verb. Either way, booze-doos are puke. 
to use it in a sentence. If you can't pay the booze dues, get out of the booze kitchen, because that's the sink I usually throw up in, and you don't want to be around for that, your holiness. Oh, uh, I was with the Pope at the time. I think you'll agree, even through the alcoholism, some swames still shined. And so it is with most addicts. Yes, some drugs are harder than others. Yes, some addictions can escalate out of control in a matter of months or weeks. Yes, addiction can change your relationships, habits, dynamics, perceptions of reality to the point where you've stepped into an alternate dimension, where entropy demons unravel your very understanding of what it is to breathe or sleep or wake or care. Okay, actually, on further reflection, addiction does change who you are a little bit. It overlays your existence with a simple, dumb, animal desire that is easy to understand, but as hard to resist as the tides, or that garlic paste you can get at Zanku Chicken. It's a desire that occludes reasoning. It can take you places the type of person you know you are, a good person, a loving person, would never go. We'll make you cross boundaries you never thought you could. In my case, I intentionally starved a polar bear. I'm not proud of that. But on the other other hand, addiction doesn't really change who you are because all that bad shit you did and thought and felt, that's part of who you are now too, who I am. We both have to reconcile that part of our story and figure out the answer to a pretty stupid question. Who am I, anyway? While doing so, please refrain from making any student films. If you must be pretentious about your feelings, podcasting is the preferred medium. My point is, addiction either does or doesn't change who you are, and maybe we'll find out if we talk to each other about it for long enough. But either way, Movies don't really depict it right. See, in a movie, for expediency's sake, the coke addict is sniffling, the heroin addict foolishly wore short sleeves to the park, and the meth head is stripping copper wire from the walls and screaming, Crank! I needs my crank! You get it. They're an addict. It defines them in a shorthand way because it's not a movie character's place to hide that from you, the audience. But you, the addict and or addict-knower, know better. Doctors perform surgery drunk without getting caught. Athletes play sports ball games on LSD, or so my male friends tell me. People can function at a pretty darn high level until they can't. And until they can't, we get the show. And it is a good show. It varies from person to person, but it's usually a happy show because it's... A tarp of a thing, slung over our cravings for the benefit not only of you, the audience, but ourselves as well. We're not that far gone. We're not a junkie-type addict. We have hobbies. We have friends. A few, still. Hey, a portion of our wages are automatically set aside for retirement. Eh? Junkie much? I don't think so. See, sad people can be very strong actors. Especially if the role calls for someone who isn't sad. Someone who can be trusted. Someone who deserves love. Because after all, that's the show we want to star in. Unfortunately for all of us, 
It's only by pulling back the curtain, revealing the ugliness backstage to those we hope can handle it, that we can begin to write a new role for ourselves. A new show, one with fully realized characters, one that says what we meant to say in the first place. And if we're lucky, we still have some loved ones out in the crowd to encourage us, forgive us, push us away and pull us back, all to show us that whether perfect or imperfect, however disconnected we feel, however oddly shaped, we are a part of the machine after all. We have a vital place. We affect those around us. We have been missed, and it's time to get back to working order. That's if we're lucky. If we're unlucky, we let those people down. We let ourselves down. The show never ends until it does, and the audience is left analyzing the script pages for glimpses and remembrances of a player now past, because the fake and the real is all too mixed up by now to separate. So hey, fuck small talk sometimes. Be brave by being vulnerable. Reach out and check in. If your friend is a comedian or a performer, check in a couple of times. And if I'm talking to a showman right now, someone in the middle of their own performance, outwardly functioning as usual amidst depression, addiction, or both, all I can say is, we'll be waiting to applaud your efforts at the end, no matter which way it breaks. But we hope you're around to hear us. You are you, beautiful, addicted you, and you can drop whichever adjectives from that phrase you'd like with a little time and effort. Or an unbelievable amount of time and effort, but it's still worth it. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. William Shakespeare. I hate small talk. I like to get into an elevator with a stranger and say, I haven't talked to my dad in two years. Louis C.K. No one now knows if William Shakespeare really was who he seemed to be. Everyone now knows Louis C.K. really was exactly who he seemed to be. Life's funny like that. Then later, often, much less funny. And then it ends. But in the interim, the show must go on. And it must be Commedia dell'arte, because it seems to involve altogether too many creepy masks. Here to remove some of those masks and discuss all of the above and more, my dear friend and collaborator, the skinniest kid at Fat Camp, the incomparable Katie Stoll, does me the great honor of joining me in the pit this week. I give you a, a pop? I have a pop over here. You call it pop. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, All I right. do. But normally I don't call it a LaCroix pop, but I'll definitely call it a, a soda pop. You'll call a soda a pop. I'm here with Katie Stoll. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hey, thanks so much for joining us oh. in our dank, depressing pit. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. It's beautiful. I'm not trying to call your home a dank, depressing pit. <laughs> I mean the figurative pit from which we tell the tales, Oh, obviously. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we are recording this in Katie's beautiful home. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, 
Thank you for coming all the way out here. I guess that's that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here we About are. realistic logistics. But <laughs> um, yeah, the episode today is going to be about substance abuse and addiction, which is something I have a lot of firsthand experience mm-hmm. with. And I'm just going to go straight for the big questions. Uh, I, from the outside, have feel that you've never had a problem with substance abuse yourself firsthand. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate? No. Okay. Um, I mean, it it is uh, in that I've never actually let it um, take over my life. Bravo. Completely, pl- well <laughs> thank <done>. you. <laughs> Hands off to me. Uh, but I come from a family that has a lot of substance abuse and it is in my personality deeply rooted and it's a fear of mine that I was raised with uh, that it that it's in me and I see it um and so it's always been a struggle for me to keep a balance in what my relationship is with with drugs with alcohol with food um uh and that that has created its own type of tension and and right now I do think that I I currently still smoke way too much pot which is a to is probably a less uh, you know, it just got legalized. Do you feel self-conscious about smoking pot? Um, not anymore. Okay. Um, but I am hyper aware that I use it a lot. Interesting. I only ask because, you know, we see each other. Yeah. I smoke too much pot. Okay. And I smoke in front of you. Mm-hmm. And I, you've never, uh, you know, been like, hey, pass that over here. I have, though. <laughs> we played D&D. I'm parties, high. Parties, yeah, that's sure. true. That's true. I guess I was thinking of, and this is probably my failing as a human, but when we had that meeting, mm-hmm. I guess in your mind, you're like, well, this is a meeting. I'm not sure. going to get high. Yeah, yeah. And what's funny is I'm like... Well, I'm, it's a meeting, but I'm an entertainment, so I, I am going to get, get high. high. <laughs> well, see, so so more recently, I have been trying not to smoke during the day, uh, mm-hmm. unless it is like a, a party environment, because I find that that also leads right. to more of my depression. And at the same time, I also find it as a tool to lessen my anxiety. So there's some sort of balance that I'm trying to strike. Absolutely. And if... After experimenting with that, if I need to remove it completely, then I'll, it's a conversation I'll have with myself. Sure. Um, but I, I, but more importantly, I grew up with two older brothers mm-hmm. who are bad drug addicts. Okay. Um, I watched my brother overdose on heroin when I was ten. Wow. Um, I my my other brother, uh, and that my, my that was my eldest brother and. Mm-hmm. Um, he survived that, but he passed away about six years ago from liver disease mm-hmm. related to his drug abuse. Drug abuse. Um, and at that point, my other brother was so off the rails with his meth addiction that he showed up for the memorial service on the wrong day. Um, okay, I, so not just on meth, but not like no one was even there. It was, or early? He showed up a day late. A day late for right. the memorial service. Mm-hmm. God. Um, uh, and that's been hugely formative. My oldest brother was 15 years older than me, right. so for as long as I can remember, he, you know, at first, it was almost. I mean, he was a hippie. He wore tie dye. He had dreadlocks. He had hand. He lived in a bus that he had painted with red hand prints to protest the gulf war and yeah media has given us this totally skewed or i think people who are lucky enough not to struggle with addiction or know someone um would be surprised like i just look at the statistics that's such a common thing and from the outside and i think we'll talk about this more um 
you can put on a great show. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, a drug addict is not necessarily just chilling out in that like a crack den only doing drugs all the right. time. You'll meet someone and they'll be cool and they'll be full of life and mm-hmm. creative ideas mm-hmm. and they'll still overdose on a drug. It's not, it, it touches everyone. Like it I've does. known people from every walk of life and every personality type, including people who are rigidly conservative and mm-hmm. anti-drug who end up overdosing. Yeah, yeah. Maybe even more so because they're definitely not, re- you know, that's probably more secretive well, they're and they're asking for help and they're and doing I, it for alone. Yeah. Drinking alone it was the beginning of the end for me. Yeah. The the aloneness was really yeah. the deadly part. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, I we did a thing on Cracked a while back about meth and how many high functioning meth addicts there are out there. I met someone recently who somehow kicked it and it was secret. He's a, he's a working actor. You see him on uh, Friends and he's wow, like, yep, yeah. high on meth there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I didn't know you knew Matthew Perry. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, now, yeah, Matthew but, Perry. <laughs> but I think that's really the point is, and for the record, I must say, I never drove drunk and I never showed up to work at Crack Drunk, yeah. but I could still have uh, very involved conversations or function if I had mm-hmm. to. Um, yeah, I think people feel like they just know who's a drug addict because they've seen Breaking Bad and like, yeah. oh, math people look like this. And there's an end stage of that. But the point is, I, I, all we're really getting at is that addiction, I think, is a lot more pervasive than people want to think. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to reach out and ask these questions. Yeah. So witnessing such trauma from substance abuse firsthand growing up did that i did it form a hard shell of i will never ever ever do a drug or did it did you feel like you wanted to know what your brothers had experienced that led them down that path Mm -hmm. it i would say that it it formed a hard shell i think i know for a long time and it made me um i was very angry at them once the spell of I idolize my big brothers was broken sure. probably around the time when I watched him overdose right um there was a lot of resentment and protectiveness of my parents and it's you know you talk about only recently have I started going to like Al-Anon meetings which are mm. a great resource for anybody that's mm-hmm. struggling with family members who are um substance abusers um how codependent that makes a person um the need to come in and fix the situation or diffuse it um uh and make people happy and and so that's a big part you of, mean in yourself in myself you that's a big part it's a of you big part of me and from I'm, that mm-hmm, okay. and i and i'm seeing that now with mm-hmm. working on myself um and it affects my relationships but so i grew up definitely being that and I and I saw that as my personality you know an overachiever I can do everything I can make people happy I can fix this and no I'm not going to touch substances but then by like senior year in high school I was sick of being the good kid and Mm. then I started smoking cigarettes and Mm -hmm. I started smoking pot then uh and someone saw you smoking a cigarette and they're like you you're in theater now (laughs) this is your career either that or ballet those are your options yeah yeah (laughs) um yeah that was a turning point for me uh uh and so then I, I vacillated back and forth with it and then once I was through college, I again formed a hard line about, mm-hmm. no, I can't have substances in my life because then I see it taking over. Or the one time I did cocaine in, in college a couple mm. times and I liked it so much. Oh, really? I loved 
cocaine. I had <laughs> the best night of my life in San Francisco. Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. Disclaimer, disclaimer. It's an awful drug. Don't do it. But that's when I I realized that I'm very strict with myself. Sure. Like, I cannot do this again. Well, it's very, in- everyone's very different physiologically and drugs attack different pathways differently. So just to balance that out. Sure. In case someone's listening and oh, taking yeah. this as advice, which they shouldn't. I've also done cocaine only once at Burning Man. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it worked. I felt what it feels like. I felt the experience. And I have a highly addictive personality and cocaine's supposed to be. Yeah. I didn't care for it and I don't have any need to do it again. Yeah. It's just not my drug. Yeah. Um, but some things are, so it just sure, depends what yeah. gets its hooks in you. And as you alluded to, I think very wisely uh, a couple minutes ago also, like you mentioned food, and people can be addicted to exercise, mm-hmm. people can be addicted to. Exactly. Addiction is, also I feel like people like try to coordinate off and think that addiction is something people who are addicts fall prey to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a spectrum. Everyone yeah. has different levels of addiction to every behavior they engage in at any time yeah yeah i mean yeah for food for me i mean i was an overweight kid okay like very overweight i got sent to to fat camp when i was 11 or something (gasps) did it help i'm what is fat camp ever effective well it was actually i say fat camp because it's funnier but it was fat class it was a couple nights a week and like you'd show up and you'd learn about healthy eating choices and they'd weigh Mm. you in in front of everybody and then you'd all exercise together um and yes it worked was it healthy for me? I don't know. Okay. Um, my parents didn't tell me to do that. My doctor told me to go. Um, yeah. And uh, but you know that's a young age to be thinking about it. And well, talk, yeah. How old were you? Like ten or eleven. It's around the same time as all that other stuff was going on. I guess. And, yeah, I just don't. I mean, I'm not a doctor, so who am I to judge? But yeah. I'm like, your doctor said, hey, this 10-year-old who's just gone through a bunch of family trauma is too fat, send her to fat class. That's weird. <laughs> That's weirdly aggressive and invasive yeah, and, to your and life. Yeah, and you know, and like... <laughs> Unless like, you're like morbidly obese, I was, having health problems. I, yeah. I was the skinniest kid at fat camp, which will be the title <laughs> of my autobiography That's someday, isn't it? Title: <laughs> The skinniest kid at fat camp, and like you get picked last because people <laughs> feel like they can't resonate with you. They didn't yeah. like me. You're not <laughs> real was, fat, you poser. Yeah, you're just <laughs> chubby. Um, and then at the weigh-in, they're like. You lost the smallest percentage of weight, you fat. <laughs> yeah, that's what it felt like. I'm sorry. Um, uh, no, I mean, it, it's okay. It's all part of who I am. But I do, you know, and there have been times, I'm a, a slim person, but there have been times when I've been too skinny, and that's Putting a thing. Lightly. Yeah, okay. you know. So it's vacillated for you. Yeah, it's a lot, vacillated, yeah. but I think that, and there was a moment in the height of the chaos when I was in high school, um, and I, I remember thinking, this is a thing I can control. But you can't mm. really like, especially when you start thinking like that, then it's starting, you're starting to the, not the control, like my weight or food intake, sh- stuff like that, sure. as opposed to like, um, you know, the, yeah, the chaos that was happening around. Um, uh, and thankfully I got through that, but it's all part of it. You're talking about the, the different things you can become addicted to. Right. That became a lifeline for me and it was misguided you know? and i will say the thing you end up if you find yourself telling yourself more than 10 times mm-hmm. that hey other people use this in moderation all i have to do is reset and just use it in yeah. moderation if you've said that to yourself like made that deal with yourself more than two or three times that's a substance or behavior to watch yeah. out for because that's the one that you actually can't do that about the other ones you sort of take for granted so like for example i have a close friend who <laughs> goes on and off smoking cigarettes 
Mm-hmm. And, and they truly are addicted to cigarettes. If they have one, it's mm-hmm. tough to not have the yeah. next one or the next one. Whereas uh, when they smoke and I'm around them, I'll go like, yeah, give me a cigarette. Then when I go home, I don't have a pounding need to buy mm-hmm. a pack and smoke cigarettes. Um, but I have that about alcohol and weed. And, yeah. and I have been a binge eater. There was a period where I would buy like, the equivalent of what four people should get at a Taco Bell and eat it all and throw up and cry. Yeah. My problem with binge eating was that I was never good at throwing up, so that didn't work for me. I have a really crappy stomach, as you know, from knowing me my whole life. So I don't know if that's my saving grace, but I'm very good at throwing up. We Um, each have our, our strengths, you know? Although I always used to hate it. And now, since I quit drinking, I've thrown up in excess of 100 times. I started counting because it's been nuts. God. <laughs> and uh, A, it's a good disincentive to not do that again. Yeah. And B, it's crazy how, and this is awesome. We're giving some bad advice today. No. It's crazy how if you throw up enough, it becomes no big deal. <laughs> I was like, oh, I do see how I could have been bulimic if I had right. chosen to. Right. <laughs> because throwing up used to be so scary to me. Yeah. And like this morning, I just got up and was like, I'm going to see Katie, so I got to throw up. And I like just emptied my stomach by thinking of gross things until it triggered. And then I was like, all right, mouthwash, gum, I'm out of here. So you throw up every day? <laughs> Multiple times every day, yeah. Right, lately. Lately. I mean, I was at yeah. the doctor this morning trying to get to the bottom of it. The issue with me was I, uh, after all the cracked stuff went yeah. down, I didn't have health insurance until January 1st yep. because I couldn't afford a Cobra. So, yep, me too. Thanks, Obama. <laughs> Your legacy of failure fucks another citizen. But now we're back at it. Two exactly. days deep into health insurance. It feels good. It's amazing. I love yeah. seeing a doctor who has a one in three chance of knowing what the hell they're talking about. Yeah, it's better than a, than a zero. <laughs> it is. And it's better than me searching WebMD and making my exactly. own decisions. I'll change this about my life. But, uh, <laughs> But yeah, I've also uh, I'm off weed now as well. You are to see how long I can go for that with that to see if it helps the stomach primarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, because was it you that recently told me somebody in the last few days was saying that uh, long term? No, it was Daniel Vincent Gord. Yesterday I was having lunch with Daniel I miss Vincent him Gord. So much I don't he's, see him ever. He's a delightful human yeah. being. Um, uh, Daniel and I have similar relationships with marijuana um, and we, we was discussing it and he was like and he was telling me about how long-term marijuana use can lead to a lot of vomiting and stomach issues also being cool also being cool and, and hip <laughs> yeah all yeah. of that well, glazed and glassy-eyed almost all drugs tend to have the opposite effect when you are off them so like people I have known who used to do Molly a lot, we'll talk about the Tuesday suicides mm-hmm. where you did too much Molly or ecstasy Saturday. Yep. And on Tuesday, you're in danger of killing yourself because you're so yeah. depressed. And uh, that's why I've avoided ecstasy. Yeah. Um, I've done Molly sparingly, but I don't need the extra. Yeah. Like, it's Molly plus Adderall. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm pretty high energy anyway. You don't need that. Um, um, and yeah, so weed, I originally started smoking because it immediately made my nausea go away. Yes. And I had nausea from stress reasons. I had a peptic ulcer in college and normal stuff. But anything you do, it ba- it always backfires. So now it's very likely that the weed is making me more prone to chronic nausea all yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, it's very upsetting. Uh, because <laughs> it's great. It grows out of the ground. It's Feels natural. Good. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's cool looking. Um, I, it's hard. I guess the goal is, <laughs> I mean, like I would love to get to a place where I am 
good without it. Right. Um, where I, you know, part, part of it is panic or anxiety and it helps me calm down and that's not good. You know, I mean, it mm-hmm. is, it's a better than saying, you know, I stopped taking Prozac a it's, while back. And weed is certainly less invasive of a panic reducer than many things. Or Xanax or something, which right. I was prescribed and I um, would rather, yeah, smoke some pot. But I mm-hmm. also, you know, um, I have a hard time. And I don't know, because of my history with my family, mm-hmm. I never know, and I'm hyper aware of, of losing control, and not, and I don't want to get to that point, so I don't know what is um, the what is the point where it's too much, and also um, how hard I should be on myself about it. Mm. Um, so do you, because I would lie to myself a lot, do mm-hmm. you not do that? Like, do you look at yourself unflinchingly and be I'm, like, I'm doing this too much right now? Because the voice in my head would always go, you're fine. Or, you know, do that. I, I'm i pretty mean to myself. Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty across the board. I'm mean to myself about other things. Yeah. But I would encourage myself to keep drinking, mm-hmm. which is being mean to yourself in a way. Sure. I guess, but okay. But it's and like. That, that must come from your background, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, and after my brother died, I became really rigid about not doing anything um uh and that's when i you know in that period of time started being on prozac and mm-hmm. and was given xanax and um at the time i was dating cody still and mm-hmm. or i started dating cody right after my brother died actually okay. um bad time to start dating someone guys <laughs> um, relationship went well for a long time <laughs> yeah and he's still my best friend right, so there there's go. that but i think that it you know i that, thought i was your best friend okay he's <laughs> one of my best <laughs> right, friends right, right, right. um uh but it, it i became so wrapped up in controlling everything and and not relaxing and meaning not just yourself but also mm-hmm. things around you mm-hmm. it goes back to that codependent kind of uh fix it thing sure. and instead of like looking inside to see the things that i needed to work on for myself it was everything around me and 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 that lent itself to my career which is incredibly it's impossible to control. You can do your best, but in this industry, in this yeah, industry, there's no control. You have to be okay with the unknown. You have to be okay with not making it. Focusing on being good at your job, mm-hmm. sticking around as long as you can, yeah. and maybe the, the ray of light will shine and pull you up yeah. to the big leagues or not. And that last part is mostly luck. Yeah, like you should be good at your job. But you are just waiting for something cool to happen yeah, for the most part. Totally. And you're waiting for years and years. So long. And along the way, you do great projects you'll love forever. Exactly. Um, but you're still waiting yeah. for that break, the favorite yeah. break. <laughs> and then you're not being present. You're not enjoying the stuff that's happening around you right now. And even though it's insane, you somehow think you're responsible for the break mm-hmm. not coming when it's actually the result of a chaotic system comprised of millions of parts that no one can control. Yeah. You can't blame yourself when like the weather didn't break your way, you know? Yeah. Although I did have a friend when I was younger whose mom said that she could control the weather and that always fascinated me. I should look her up. Yeah. <laughs> My mom used to cl- claim if you, yeah, you could use your mind and stare at a cloud to make like drill a hole in it. And we really thought it worked, but all it really, she would only say it when it's pretty windy yeah. because it just means if you're looking at any one spot, the cloud yeah. will eventually move, move away. Yeah. Yeah. Just stick like, with psychic. it. Yeah. It's a good metaphor it though. Just, now. just keep putting your attention and your focus on it. Exactly. Um, it's yeah. interesting that at your 
relationship to your own addictions just is so interesting to me because it's kind of the opposite of what I, Mm -hmm. my relationship and yet the same like root because uh, you were talking about it made you want to maintain control and maintain control. When I felt self-loathing and like in the throes of addiction, it was letting go of all control and thinking that all these things that stress me out if I were just a drunk in the gutter or dead, better mm-hmm. yet, they would not be stressors anymore. She sure. was running away from having to put energy into my life to maintain yep. order. Um, like, I'd be like, oh, there's too many emails in my inbox. I'm going to go get drunk. You yeah, know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was to obliterate my brain so it would stop going. You need to do eight things today. Yep. Yeah. Well, it comes back to, and something we had mentioned about our appearances. So for me, maintaining control, I think that the real thing that kept me from ever, and maybe I wouldn't have gone all the way down the rabbit hole if I'd sure. trusted myself. Maybe I wouldn't have, but I don't know. Um, but it's that I could not bear the thought of disappointing my parents. And I cannot bear the thought of being... Uh, a disappointment to them and then uh, the people around me. So keeping, we talked about keeping up appearances. That is something I'm good at. Uh, Or like if my friends, you know, it wasn't wasn't until the last few years, actually after Cody and I broke up that I really started being more open and Mm. it still is a struggle for me with the people that I love um, about where I'm at at emotionally uh, because I don't want to be a burden and I'm embarrassed about having a weakness or something. As I say that, that's crazy and I don't, that doesn't resonate with me so much now, but it's a big part of me. So I think that that is when it's, when it's just sadness or depression, of course, there's the voice in your head that tells you like, this is why can't you just stop? Mm-hmm. Like, why can't you just snap out of a quote unquote mm-hmm. or not be sad? Yeah. Yeah. And you beat yourself up for that. Sure. Um, that, that was a big part of the struggle is making yourself vulnerable enough to be honest about who you are. But then your life is opens up so much more beautifully if you can be vulnerable and mm-hmm. you can share. That's why I think this is so cool that you're doing this. You know, I, I say this is actually what I'm going through to someone. And then they go, wow, thank you for sharing that. And now they feel safe about sharing what they're going through. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because there's such a stigma about everything. I mean, everything that's negative. Right, (laughs) right, right. Like substance abuse, depression, all of it. Well, we live in a totally competition-driven society Mm -hmm. completely, yeah. So there's a whole half of our upbringing that is yelling at us, you know, like, don't show weakness to the Mm -hmm. outside world because that's how you gain status in America and your job and Mm -hmm. all these things and don't let people walk all over you. But through vulnerability is the only way. Also, I just don't want to live in a world where everyone's only doing surface small talk and not like talking about, we only have so much time on this earth. Yeah, I know it can be, and I don't know why, but it's embarrassing to like admit your feelings. Yeah. But why? What the fuck else are we doing? These yeah. are like the big important things that are going on inside me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Why should we talk about like nonsense? And and yeah, that's the journey you're mm. on. Um, yeah. Yeah. So are have your parents are just trying to suss out like the genetics yeah. of it? I come from a long line of alcoholics. Mm-hmm. You talked about disappointing your parents. Is that because they have no notable like addictive tendencies at all? Are they good mm-hmm. in that area? Uh, yeah, they're not addicts. Uh, my, my dad, they definitely drink every night, but like a, 
glass or two of wine. You like know? my dad can have a beer two nights a week and not go crazy. So yeah. he's fine. Right. <laughs> I mean, they do, they do have wine every night, but that's more so over the last, well, no, my dad always has, but my mom started in the last few years. That's they, for your heart health, right? I guess. I guess. That's the heart excuse mind. we love to use. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they did, well, they lived on hate in the sixties and seventies or whatever. Um, they're a little bit older. I mean the street. The street, hate I, the street. I was like, <laughs> they lived they on lived pure hate. hate. Yeah. <laughs> it you know us. Woodstock? They were there throwing beanbags <laughs> at people's heads. Um, no, they yeah, they were yeah, there. Hate Ashbury. Was it as cause now it feels like a mini mall of right. hippie museum artifacts. Was it like authentic? It was then? authentic, that, although it might yeah. have been on the tail end when it was a, you know, I mean, I think the 60s. So it was this, I guess it would be the 70s when they were there. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, it was still like heyday. So they did stuff and sure. and they take a lot. They, they, I know that they hold some feelings of blame because um, my oldest brother was my half brother. So mm-hmm. my mom's first marriage and then mm-hmm. he left my mom immediately after the baby was born. And uh, when he was one, she met my dad and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, Blah, blah, blah. True love. (laughs) Yada, yada, yada. Uh, But so there was drugs in the house when he was young. Okay. Um, Different. It was different drugs, different culture. Um, And by the time my other brother was born, uh, it was out of the house. But, you know, they definitely carry... Um, mm-hmm. guilt about that and and he was and he, it sounds like he interwove it with the hippie culture he himself did. and his life right? and his dad um, who's like an uncle to me at this point uh, he is very wealthy and he had moved to Singapore to do international law there so my brother played them off of each other like well screw mm-hmm. you guys I'm gonna go live with dad and then he got almost killed because he got caught with marijuana in Singapore which is no joke uh, and then he came back wow. here and yeah. so he was bouncing around. Um, always, always, always big dramatic things. But he gave my other brother his first joint when my brother was 10 or 11. So and then just your, uh, what would you call him? Well, he, you weren't born, so he's just your quote unquote uncle. How should we refer to him? Well, uh, Ex stepdad, but he was never even your stepdad. He's never. Dad, right? I know it was very confusing. He's, but he's my my mom and him started dating when they were high in high school. Sure. They were high school sweethearts. It, she's he's her oldest friend, so he's like a brother. Okay. I just think of him as an uncle, but he's not actually related to me in any way. Okay, so yeah, it was just a bad match. It wasn't like yeah. an abandonment things well he did abandon okay all right but you've somehow managed the family's still on friendly terms however my point is is was there no way or at least communicating was there no way to just couldn't get that united front together or was an effort ever made to be like well you know when you show up in singapore that dad is just gonna say no you can't have any drugs also um i mean a drug addict i'm again your parents shouldn't feel responsible because once someone's an adult you just can't stop them if that's what they want to do but I guess I'm just asking for the benefit of the listeners. Um, what are I mean? Was there ever an intervention? Oh What yeah. are some things you did try? Okay. Uh, I, I don't like there were many interventions. Yeah, I yeah. don't remember that phase. I if I was born at that point, sure. You know, um, I mean, I was back and forth, but I don't remember that so specifically. Oh, but yeah, Coco. I call him Coco, mm-hmm. uh, my eldest brother. Uh, 
lots of rehab, lots of this and that. And of course, there's like, no, this is not acceptable. And they try everything, you know. Um, we talk about in hindsight, you try putting your foot down. Well, then he runs away or he goes to his dad. Right. Or, you know, uh, you try to be understanding and then they run amok. Uh, mm-hmm. There's just a certain degree of out of your control. Um, Rob, Coco's dad, is an alcoholic, continues to be. Sure. Um, he'll never listen to this but he would never call himself that but definitely is and on Coco's side of the family interestingly enough uh, two of the other men died of the same thing liver disease Mm. so definitely prone to it but it's a problem on that side of the family and it's a problem on my side too but to a lesser degree Um, uh, and so then yeah he influenced Ryan and then Ryan was was real bad throughout high school and there was lots of interventions then and then getting sent to the high school that's for the bad kids or you know uh, rehab facilities that he would just run away from did they vacillate were there times where they were gung-ho on trying to quit or Mm -hmm. for the most part were they just wanted to do drugs they wanted to do drugs until they didn't Uh, my Coco had my nephew Aiden Mm -hmm. and um they were doing kind of better uh, with Aiden's mom and at the, she already had two kids and they were sort of doing better, but then it disintegrated. They were two addicts living together and um, it, that makes it so hard. It's yeah. so hard. And then I remember the day Aiden was like three or something and they were, had been evicted and Coco was living in a van with Aiden and my parents came and, and child protective services were coming. Mm-hmm. So my parents took Aiden and instead of child protective right. services and yeah. Coco went to jail and, uh, for something, I don't remember. And then he got out, and I remember that Christmas, and he came to us clean, mm. except for smoking pot. He never quit that. Sure, well that's, yeah. I was wondering how much he, did he put on a show? Did he try not to be high in front of his little sister, or was that not <laughs> no, a priority? Okay, not a priority, okay. and it was scary. There were <laughs> right. certainly times when it was terrifying. Sure. As it got worse, you know, again, there was a of moment course. when it was young, when he was younger, there was something playful and magical and hippie-ish about it, but then it got dark. And right. it became, you spiral out of control and um, he's homeless and yeah. you can't help him. Uh, and it's scary and he's angry and he's so much anger and you can't communicate mm. with him effectively. And uh, But he quit meth mm. and the hard drugs mm-hmm. and my parents let him move in. So we raised Aiden and Coco was there and he just never, he knew about his hepatitis, but he didn't tell us. And, um, and I bet that was a good time for him though, mm-hmm. to be with Aiden and the family yeah. home clean yeah. for a while. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was never able to maintain a normal like life in that he would stay up all night and sleep a lot in the day Sure, and, uh, he would do sales and stuff and make some money to help, but mm-hmm. he couldn't have raised Aiden by himself or, le- or held down a job per mm-hmm. se. Um, but he was able to flourish and then, um, to, to you know more so than he had been yeah and, and i was gonna say let's not let this define him i can no. we hear some great stuff yeah, yeah of good course memories. of course i mean that's that that part of i'm course. blown away by the idea like it is a disease this is something out of his it's so dark and scary and you're alone and yeah. and he did that for his son and he was there and he did and like so he made it work the way that he could and he mm-hmm. was so kind when he died um, so many people from his life came out of the woodwork to say, 
Michael was kind to me when no one else would. Right. He, I was, yeah. he was driving on the street and he saw me walking along barefoot and he pulled over and he brought me to McDonald's and he got me a mm, burger and he mm. gave me some shoes. Yeah. And he, you know, he was kind and, and that's who he was. And um, towards the end when he was sick, we tried to get him on the transplant list and okay. they wouldn't do it because of his history of mm-hmm. substance abuse. They said they would monitor it and that when he got really sick, they'd make sure he got on. Um, but in the meantime, he had to go to rehab, go to start going to AA meetings. And uh, so liver disease and cirrhosis is incredibly painful. It's debilitating. You, you can't really move. But he did it and yeah. people loved him. And when he couldn't go to the meetings, he was a resource and he loved talking. He loved counseling people and being there for them. He was pretty pretty fucking special um and uh i remember when he was you know it was really close to the end and everything was tense and um i was in a fight with my mom and i was hiding in my bedroom and he somehow came upstairs even though that wasn't easy and he was like look i know it's easy to be caught up in this but Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter go down and hug her you know i when i overdosed i saw an angel I died and she told me my time wasn't up and just, you know, and, and I look at my life now and I wonder if I'm out of time and I regret all the time that I wasted. And so he was beautiful. He had a beautiful soul. Um, hate the disease. Hate the, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Ryan, my other brother continued to spiral for a long time. Um, after Coco died, um, and he hated it. And at that, up till then he hadn't, acknowledged us or like really seemed to want to change but he that's the hardest hurdle because like the big step for me was to tell jen that i was drinking which was like so scary an unfathomable thing to do at the time yeah um and to right because i still had the show up and felt yeah like i could choose to maintain the show and maybe i could quit on my own secretly but i've said that to myself many times over the last four years you know yeah um And I think one of the hardest things to do when you're mentally to get yourself out of that place, uh, it sounds like something your brother, of course, was going through is to, you are fucking up. Like you're objectively know that you're fucking up your health. It hurts your loved ones, but you can't just shit on yourself. Like it's so tempting to go like go ham on hating yourself because if you're an empathetic person, you know you're fucking up. Yeah. But that is the fastest way to just stay at the bottom. Yes. You need the mental energy and positivity to dig yourself out. You have to have things to hope for. Yep. And I just want to like shout out to all the people hating on themselves for their addiction. It feels selfish to love yourself even though you're an addict. Mm-hmm. Do it anyway. It's not selfish because the more you love yourself, the faster you're going to heal. And that's really what the people around yep. you want from you. Yep. Uh, yes and they will forgive it and they understand i'm reading some my dad gave me this self-help book and i'm reading and mm-hmm. there is something in the, changing the way that you your inner dialogue how you react like oh it was like how do you react to this sentence of uh you know you ask someone out and they said no instead of feeling embarrassed whatever it is but some some um uh thing she suggested is when you're beating yourself up about something to just rephrase I'm a loser and rephrase it to um, I'm just a little bunny figuring out (laughs) (laughs) figuring things out I love that I'm like I'm just a little bunny and I'm figuring it out (laughs) (laughs) Kurt Vonnegut has a line uh, 
no matter how awful someone is or whatever they've done in their lives, the least we the least credit we can give them is they just got here. Yeah. Like it's everyone's first day yeah. or first life. Like if we if we could live a thousand times, I'm sure we'd be much better at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah. But um Ryan bounced back and forth. Well, first of all, he got released out of jail or prison actually. Um that's a whole other thing. Uh sure. um without his antidepressants that they had mm-hmm. been giving him for a year and a half and just or a like prescription. kicked him out the door and yeah. cut it off. That's the other thing, man, is our system doesn't, as you said, like the donor list, et cetera. There's a lot of way we structurally stigmatize yep. people who are struggling with addiction, which is so weird because yeah. we're setting them up every, to fail and almost everyone's struggling with addiction. And the more you set someone up to fail, the longer they'll be an addict mm-hmm. and when they if the if and when they do finally have major medical problems guess what that's a tax on like yeah. everyone the yeah. community society if even if you're only talking financially like yeah. it's cheaper more humane and it's the right thing to do to be reaching out and helping people Absolutely. with who are struggling with addiction yeah. yeah um so his he wasn't out long he relapsed but during that time he reconnected with um the girl he dated for the longest period when he was the healthiest Mm -hmm. and we all loved her and she'd since become um, done amazing things and he's a teacher got her master's has a home in half moon bay and they reconnected and so then he had to go back to jail but while every day that he was in there she would call and they fell back in love or he would go visit and when he got out she was there and um and she was a huge support and he is doing so well he's got we have they have a baby yeah he's um a year and a half and uh um he's got he just got hired he was temping with the city and they just look past his record and because they love him and they value him and they gave him a full-time job and (sighs) it means so much it's like and and that's the thing anybody is listening that's struggling with this rock bottom he was at rock bottom for a long time Mm -hmm. And slowly but surely, he's built this life that he loves, and he's so happy, and uh, it's possible. And we didn't think that it was going to happen. Inspirational. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do now. I I am lucky enough to not have hit a very deep rock bottom, um, but I've still been ashamed of myself and been in dark places. And yeah, I want to feel what those people who are like, yeah, I've been totally straight for six months. I just I feel naturally energetic and high on life. I'm like. I can't remember what that feels like. Yeah. The la- when I was like 12, I would be happy and full of energy and not need any substances. But that's like the last conscious memory I have of that being true. It's hard because then you also started that's absorbing rough. all the stuff that's happening in the world. <laughs> you know? Sure. And I highly recommend Katie's appearance on At Least There's This. Oh, another thank great you. Podcast, <laughs> uh, where they talk about the silver linings that keep us all from despairing completely. I, I think that's a great concept. It's a great concept. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Alex Schiffman, good concept. <laughs> um, and let's talk a little about the show then, if we could. Mm-hmm. By which, I mean, the show we put on. Uh, again, th- I mean, thank you so much for being brave and vulnerable in this yeah. space right now. And it's obviously an old stereotype that performers are often like deep down have some depression issues. Yeah. And it makes it finally clicked for me that it's because 
it's it's the other way around it's like chicken and egg Mm -hmm. like no people who are depressed learn how to perform Mm -hmm. and then they realize well i'm skilled at that so Mm -hmm. i'll go into that field is how i I like have you felt that way absolutely okay you know i and then looking back i mean i've been acting since i was very little um there are elements of needing approval um there are elements of wanting to make people laugh uh, wanting to cheer people up. Yeah, it just feels uh, good. It feels good. It's your and way to help people, yeah. Yeah, it is. And literally, so I've told you this story before. Um, I was very depressed in college and I took time off. I think I've told you this story. I took, uh, when I got to college, I was still acting and then I was like, this doesn't make sense and so I'm gonna be a lawyer and studied yeah. poli sci <laughs> and I did that and I was very, very depressed and I took some time off and I went home and I was like, God, what is it that I actually wanna do? What is it that I'm actually good at? And I was like, and it was like a light bulb, making people laugh, uh, entertaining people, making people feel good. Um, and I was like, when I get back to school, I'm gonna go find something to audition for. And the first thing I fought, found was a flyer for On the Eve of Destruction. Mm-hmm. If, is that what it was called? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The sh- a show that Michael had wrote and was directing. Um, and In he a cast- state of deep depression. Yeah. Because I wanted nothing more than to be an actor. And every acting teacher at UCSD was telling me nothing but like, you're doing good, you're doing it right. And I could not get a part in anything. Really? That's the only reason I started writing at all. Wow. I was like, I will. I heard that, oh, you can rent out GH-157 yeah. if you write your own thing. And that was the first time I ever tried to write anything. That's incredible. <laughs> you know, that's how, so that's like, how I met you. <laughs> we met on like firsts. Yeah, that's, that's a big cool. deal. And then you got, but then you were... You were in all the shows after that, uh, or you were in a few. I was in a few. I was Lord Rotsley and Bearded yes. Avon, I think, was my biggest. I was in a bunch of the grad shows, but I was yes. literally like, in one show, I was a guy with four lines who had lesions all over his face <laughs> and a bald cap that was so painful to put on and take off that I was there two hours before oh, and after man. everyone else. So not worth it. And then I was in... Uh, some pl- I forget what it's called, something of the bourgeoisie, where the only thing I did was literally lift a big fat guy and carry <laughs> him across the stage. Uh, hi, Lee Dolson. You're an incredible actor, and I've seen you have lost all the weight since, so I don't think you'll be insulted. <laughs> right. But you weighed a lot when I had to carry you in in the bourgeoisie play. It wasn't your brightest moment? <laughs> um, no, but it was exciting still uh, sure. to get cast in those plays at that point. Well, it's the greatest... It was, and it's and it uh, it's the greatest thing that ever happened to me because I feel that writing is something that's very yes. intrinsic to my being now. So that's another lesson we come back to a lot of times, especially for those out there having such a bad day. You're contemplating suicide. Uh, don't, because yeah, <laughs> unless you're like 85 and in constant pain, because uh, the trauma shapes you, mm-hmm. and you might end up liking who you turn out to Absolutely. be. Absolutely. Uh, It's hard to see that and hard to remember that in the moment. I can't tell you how upset I was uh, at the end of our UCSD like tenure. Yeah. I got an acting award that was like best actor of class. And I tore it up and like wept bitterly because I'm like, I did not feel that at all the whole time I was here. No one let me play with them. No one let me like be a part of their world. And I still feel that way about Hollywood. I feel like Hollywood is the cafeteria and I am not allowed at the cool table. Yeah. And someday maybe I will be, but I don't know why or when or what's going on. And that's so interesting because to me, 
especially in college, you seemed, talking about the show, very happy and confident and calm and and and, and um, uh, ready to follow forge your own path even um which you have been doing and and it was something that gave Only me be- inspiration but <laughs> yeah, really sure. you know well that's amazing to hear because i feel that i've been forced to forge my own path because no one wants what i'm selling yeah. so like i'm trying to make my own show because i don't know what the hell else to do yeah. but that's actually a bad sign like people should want to come swoop down and buy your stuff you know what i mean yeah or not because as I say, I love doing this. I love doing this show with yeah. no oversight. Yes. I love making the creative decisions or making it small beans where it's like, what would be good and helpful for the people to hear? Um, so yeah, everything's relative. And like, I could dwell in how I'm disappointed with the way things didn't work out, which is really tough for me because I do get so disappointed when my plans don't come yeah. to fruition. But I'm realizing more and more that that's the main thing to let go of. Because there's so much amazing shit happening yeah. in my life. That's just not what I planned. That doesn't mean yeah. that it's bad. Yeah. Um, when I got here, I mean, I had a series of, you know, like I would get jobs like right at the bat. And then I I met your mother. Yeah. You know, it'd be things in, uh, would happen and they don't. And, or you, you book this movie and it's so exciting. Oh no. Then you got cut out of it. Um, and uh, something you learn really quickly, which I don't know if it's healthy or not, but people would say it, say it to me, learn to not feel the highs as much or the lows. So like, don't let yourself get too carried away with the good things and don't take the bad things so personally. If you're going to stick it out, it's the yeah, only way. Which right. Which is like a kind of a numbness. Um, it's funny because my family will be surprised at how I don't care anymore. Like I'll get a meeting with someone big enough that they know their name. Yeah. They know, I'll be like, yeah, so-and-so is reading my script. And they're like, how can you say it with that tone of voice? I'm like, because nine times out of ten, that's that will be the end of that. I can't afford to think like, this is it, guys. Yeah. Like every time someone reads a script, yeah. you know? Um, <laughs> Which I used, in the beginning, I would call people and like, or call so, my parents yeah. and be like, so-and-so is reading my script. I got a good feeling. Like, yeah. I'll see you at the Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Flash forward to now. <laughs> um, talking about depression. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's difficult to maintain that but uh and this is like something that i say to people and it's hard to remember but it's this until it stops being this it's this until that thing catches and if you can surround yourself with people and projects that you are excited about then that's the majority of the work because if you can't be doing it to yeah. try to please people please yourself and then the other stuff falls into place i say that very hard for me to actually uh, and for everyone to put in practice in my life. I shoot a quick crack several years before I did. Mm-hmm. And the reason I didn't is it still felt like the right place to be. That was the official track that society had carved for me mm-hmm. to get to the next level. Mm-hmm. And then I r- finally quit when I realized every day of my life is miserable. Cause I actually don't enjoy the process of what yes. we're working on. Yes. If I never got famous, but I got to work on something I cared at all, even a little about every day yeah wouldn't my life like tangibly be much better regardless of if i never reached that level and of course the answer is yes so here we are <laughs> yeah but um, whenever it is you make the decision is when you make it and start yeah, doing that work absolutely um but this show do you feel more 
because the times they are changing mm-hmm. and i think in a lot of good ways in a lot of terrible ways but uh you know that we all reference how tough the news has been but the news is also like the fact that things are so difficult causes the resistance to rise yeah and i do think there's a lot of uh good vibes out there also that wouldn't exist in easier times because they wouldn't be needed yeah like the helpers are out in force do you feel do you have it all as a goal to i'm trying to like redefine my position with putting on the show Mm -hmm. should we try and put on the show less or is there a reason we put on the show good question um that's why it's better to be the interviewer than the interviewee well i think it's (laughs) both um i think yeah, I mean, started being more open and vulnerable with people that are close to me. We said that, but over the past year, year and a half, yeah. I started being more open and vulnerable with the people that follow me um, or, you know, publicly you're speaking out or saying stuff and, and um, you know, or talking about how something makes me feel or me too or all of this stuff. And I think so like, not putting on the show of everything's fine, I think is important. You have to be able to like um, uh, pinpoint the problems in yeah. order to extricate them. But at the same time, you know, all this stuff, I am an inherently positive person. I do believe in um, things getting better. I am inspired by people. And so it's all the time, not all the time, right. it's tough to maintain. <laughs> not all the time. Okay. Definitely okay. not. Um, so sometimes so I feel like I'm like, on a roller coaster. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I can get so angry too. Yeah. Um, um, so I think that there's a balance. We can't also sit in it, but I don't know if it's necessary. The show, the show is the thing is, is the question of putting on the, the show. show is the thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think it's, important to put down our masks i guess is what i'm saying um i guess i was that's what i was getting at but i still have the reflex to go the opposite way where mm -hmm. i'm like well i'm not gonna walk into every room just telling people how i really feel all the time it is a balance it's interesting yeah um uh i think it's important i mean there is a thing you know i have an ingrained in me like put in a little effort it'll help uh Mm -hmm. make your bed i do make my bed every day that does help me uh because when i look at it i don't see i don't see chaos and that affects you (laughs) i I just don't chaos is fine Uh, i thrive on chaos it all goes back to this childhood of like get it together keep it organized um uh but you know my mom's like always look your best that your personal best now that might be less you know, today it might just be that you put on shoes and comb your hair, mm-hmm. but tomorrow it might be that you wear a sweater that makes you feel good, it, it, things like that. And and while that might, you might be putting on a show, there is something to fake it till you make it. There's also, they've proven with neurological scans that uh, if you just smile, mm-hmm. it actually releases chemicals in your brain that lessen your That's sadness. Right. So even though it seems so false and fake, you look at yourself in the mirror smiling when you're very sad and it will be like uh it's just like it will hotwire your brain and release a little yeah. bit of like are we happy like it will, it will confuse your depression <laughs> so for funny. a second also and you're just like for me this looks dumb it's kind of like funny you, i like you said concrete things like uh for me getting outside which is hard yes. to do but if i did it would break the spell often 
And if it's a mild depression, you can I could dispel it by putting on a nice suit. <laughs> totally. <laughs> suit? Or a costume. <laughs> yes. I love as a performer, I love being in a cool costume and like, mm-hmm. yeah. If you put on a costume, you it's not <laughs> you seem insane cuz you're like, I'm not a different person, but it's hard to take everything so seriously if yeah. you're looking at yourself in a nice suit or a yeah. costume. Yeah, it I hope is. a lot of our depressed listeners put on crazy costumes. Has, now yeah, and go smile out, at invest in some in wigs yeah. and some j- big giant shoes. Well, that's I'm lucky enough to have all the AOC costumes oh, still because yeah. they were just my clothes. So I'll put on <laughs> Mike outfit from AOC and be like, look at that guy. He can't yeah. be sad. He's got short shorts and like a <laughs> plush leather vest on. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Um, but yeah, getting outside is important for me. The other day I was crying. I'd like, I have good cries. Um, and I was like, great. My whole day is going to be like this, but I made myself go outside for a gentle walk. Right. And it felt better. And Way I was, better. You remember that there are other cues and new stimuli Yeah. Me, that like in and of itself, the fact that you go outside and see that the world is moving mm-hmm. and changing and alive means well, this will pass eventually. Mm-hmm. It reinforces that. And when you stay inside where you're like, I know this place like the back of my hand, it's yeah. very comfortable and soothing in that sense. But everything is the same as it ever was. Yep. And well, in the same that it'll be, I'm like, am I going to be here for the next 10 hours? Yeah, and I'm going to exactly. keep looking at this space. Till it's nighttime like, out the window. And then I'm not yeah. going to go. Yeah, that's that always gets me in an anxious loop, um, especially if I don't have something going on or I'm not, I'm not there's no friend in my foreseeable future or something like that um uh also this isn't related to a question but i've been thinking about it a lot well one putting into perspective how inconsequential and yet special i am um in this vast universe something about that takes some sort of weight about should or need to do X, Y, or Z, which mm-hmm. is a big source of... Takes that weight away? Mm-hmm. Um, which end? That you're inconsequential, so it doesn't matter, or that you're very special? <laughs> I mean, both. Like, like okay. no matter what I do, I am unique and special, um, and it doesn't have to be... And me reaching out and being a good friend is also a great way to change the world. I don't need to do something that's, you know, I don't need to be in competition with other people. And also this is a blip and uh, nothing I do was also unique or, you know, and and there's something like that. Special just like everyone else. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, but like, like it doesn't make me bad. No, or, of course not. You know, or that person over there that seems to have it so together. Sure. They don't. Also, that's just their show. That's you just don't their know. show. Um, that's an interesting double-edged sword because mm-hmm. I would sometimes use the same argument that it doesn't matter if I drink myself to death because everyone will have forgotten me in a thousand years anyway. Yeah. But it all comes back to me, again, being tied to help to wanting to make my parents happier or so-and-so. Mm-hmm. You know, like sure. So that always keeps me from going there. That's what made me... Keep it secret. So everything that works for you is bad for me. (laughs) No, I don't. I think it just goes to show that like everyone's struggle with this shit is so formed by the way they accept relationships and dynamics, the dynamics that seem comfortable to them that were ingrained in them growing up. And uh, that's why I think we need to do a lot more episodes of this show. Yeah, I agree. Because what works for some people is not going to work for other people and vice versa. Yeah. And it's been great hearing about 
other people who have had the struggle and the tactily their depression feels the same as mine, but the, everything else about their journey is yeah. totally different and they beat it in a way that would never have worked for me. Yeah. That's been very interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's illuminating, and I just want everybody to be open about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, we will definitely do this again. Yes. Your game. Of course. Are Never. there any parting words, inspiring words, or self-serving plugs you'd like to oh, get to? Oh, uh, uh, inspiring words. Uh, just um, should have told you ahead of time. <laughs> it's like that's a lot. Um, I've decided as of this episode. The guest is always responsible for inspiring the audience <laughs> at the end. <laughs> I thought that you, I think that we are all uh, special and unique is, a, is pretty inspiring. That was inspiring. It was. Yeah. I'll let you slide on that. <laughs> I'll think of something. And hey, else. everyone, look up the Time's Up movement. Support that. That's going well. Yeah. <laughs> That's inspiring me right now. Do you the know Time's Up movement? Time's Up movement. Yeah. A bunch of power player, female power oh, players. Oh, yes. 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 Man, get, that is incredible. Being like, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Like, let's codify what's going on. Let's mm-hmm. not just let it be a Twitter fad. Mm-hmm. Let's start passing OSHA laws and the equivalent yes. that are like, this is not going to happen anymore. Yes. So that's and I was I'm thrilled that people are, you know, actresses have been the, the um, focus of a lot of this stuff. But it's very I'm, exciting. Um, but I'm thrilled that actresses are taking that also to say, uh, let's focus on women in the hospitality industry. Let's focus everywhere because those are the stories that we're not seeing and that's not changing so far, yeah. you know, and, and that's the real work that needs to be done. Absolutely. All right. I guess right. we'll end on that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Rest in peace, Coco. Good luck, Aiden. You're a hero, Ryan. Katie, thank you for your bravery. As for me, I'm just a little bunny and I'm figuring it out. So hang tough until next time, friends. You are loved. This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you!